How did the 2020 pandemic affect the world of professional sports? In this episode, Dr. Nicole Sederka shares her experiences as a physical therapist in professional women's soccer during the 2020 season and how she was able to overcome limited resources while still finding success. Let's do this. Welcome to Finding Small Wins. My name is Adam Iacono, and I am a physical therapist in the NBA and a former performance coach in Major League Soccer and the National Women's Soccer League. The purpose of this show is to have conversations that pull back the curtain on sports. We're here to learn how we can upgrade health and performance and shed some light onto how some of the best at what they do are finding the small wins that help them along the way. In this episode, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Nicole Sardirka. Nicole is a former college soccer player and currently is the lead physical therapist at Red Bull North America in Los Angeles, California. Previously, she was the director of rehabilitation for the OL Reign in Seattle within the National Women's Soccer League. Nicole has routinely been featured across blogs, podcasts, and articles sharing her expertise in ACL rehab and how to manage injuries for soccer players. Nicole recently expanded her knowledge of leadership and sport management by enrolling in the Sport Directorship Master's Program at Manchester Metropolitan University. Having been a female athlete and worked as a provider in women's sports, Nicole is on a mission to provide the best care for athletes when resources are limited. Through this mission, she has joined a group of experts at BJSM to explore future strategies to upgrade the care for athletes in countries that are underserved. Now, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Nicole Sadurka. I think we both uh, are working in a sport right now that we didn't have a connection uh, actually play. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you did play college soccer, correct? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Where did you play? I played at St. John's University in New York. What position did you play? So my whole life I was a center mid, a, a 10, and I got to college and was not nearly fast or strong enough to play midfield in the Big East Conference. So they made me a forward for a little bit, but I'm not a natural goal scorer, so that <laughs> also didn't work. So I ended up playing outside back. Oh, what, left or right? I played on the left, actually, but I'm right-footed. How'd that work out for you? Uh, I had the best left foot on the team because we had no, like, by my last year, we had no natural left-footed players who played that position. And my left is good enough, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would cut in with my right often, so. Okay. And and do you still play while you're out here? I do every now and again. I play at, there's um, Venice Beach Football Club, VBFC, and they play um, futsal uh, right in Venice Beach, right by Muscle Beach. Um, so it's on like the basketball courts there, right by the right by the sand and the ocean. It's really fun. Okay. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't play much at all though. Yeah. I do miss it. <laughs> uh, so when you were when you were a college athlete, uh, one thing we talked about pre-show was your perspective on the setup that's in the environment mm-hmm. and kind of what led you down this path of being a PT. Yeah, I always felt really passionate about the fact that there would be players on my team, you know, my teammates who would get injured. And our athletic trainers were always great, but it was one athletic trainer for us, for men's lacrosse, for tennis, and covering multiple sports at the same time. And they were stretched really thin. So then you add on top all all of their regular responsibilities and you add on top of that now a long-term rehab. And it's just too much. It's too much for them to do. And so you end up, it's not anyone's fault, just the system that they're in. You can't give your best to a rehabbing athlete because you have to focus on the athletes who are performing and playing. Um, So I got really passionate about, we're Division I athletes, how come we're not getting the best care there is? 
That's a, it's a great point. And so from that perspective, where did you take your career? So I became a physical therapist and genuinely my only uh, exposure to physical therapy at that point in time was a sports setting or from an athlete's perspective. Uh, I had no idea that physical therapists were in hospitals and everything else. So kind of the whole time I was in PT school, I knew that I was going to eventually work in sports. Um, I thought maybe I'd go work in a college somewhere because professional women's soccer wasn't really a thing. So I uh, didn't really see that as uh, in, on my vision board of potential uh, career opportunities. But just I just wanted some way to fill the void of where athletes are not getting, high-level athletes aren't getting the resources that they need. It's like, what are some of those resources that you're referring to? So it could be anything really, but predominantly why is there, why are we just focused on getting in the American healthcare system, getting an athlete back to ADLs, right? Why does insurance cut you off after 30 visits when you need a whole year or more? Um, why are athletes not able to get one-on-one care with a physical therapist? Why are athletes either only seeing an athletic trainer or a physical therapist and never also working with a performance coach or with someone who knows strength and conditioning and can apply that? This a rehab is never just one person's job. It, like nobody can be an expert in everything. And high-level athletes need the best of every aspect of performance and rehab, whether that's nutrition, mental performance, sports psychology, um, strength and conditioning. It's like it, there's so many things that they should have available to them that they don't often have. And so that led you to... Wanted to learn about PT, mm-hmm. getting involved with strength and conditioning, mm-hmm. and then getting involved with soccer as well. Right, you found a niche in the soccer world too. I did, yeah. At first, I kind of um, I, I was afraid of the niche a little bit. I didn't want to pigeonhole myself, I guess. But then I started to find power and freedom in the niche, and that like it's not it's not pigeonholing yourself. It's creating what you're best at and then getting deeper from there. So I guess I was worried about not having enough breadth at first, but not understanding the power of the depth then once you do choose a specific realm that you're interested in and passionate about. And I guess that's the main thing is with the soccer aspect, I understand the game. I I played soccer. I coached youth soccer. Um, And so being able to take a rehab session and an athlete who's returning to soccer I understand what they have to get back to, not just in a numbers sense of, uh, right, they have to run eight kilometers per game and a thousand meters high speed running. It's not just that, it's the context of the sport and the technical and tactical demands that are being placed on them on top of the physical demands. And so now a return to play process can look a lot like soccer training because I know soccer. Um, so that just made, and it, it's something I enjoy. So that made it easy. <laughs> <laughs> and when you enjoy it, it's uh, it's not really work, right? I yeah, guess. for and sure. You get to, and you get to still play a little bit while you're doing it too. Exactly. I would imagine you get to tinker a little bit as you're building that out. Yeah, and actually it was really fun last year working in the NWSL and a lot of the return to sport, it was me and the injured athlete right, as they're getting contact again. Um, it's a lot of 1v1s, um, you know, with me, or if I had to help someone get exposed to playing long balls again, um, 
you know, it was them and me out on the field. And so that was a lot of fun. I got to uh, hone my skills a little bit more <laughs> for the first time since college. So that was really nice. That's I do miss that part about the soccer culture where like you, if you were the rehab specialist, you were the strength coach, like you were out there playing with, with the players, which was fun. I mean, they kicked my ass several times. Yeah. Super (laughs) fun though. uh, On paper, because I know on paper is one thing. Mm -hmm. And then the reality of what the job was when you were with the Orlando, uh, sorry, I want to say Orlando because OL. Yeah. But but with the rain in Seattle, on Mm -hmm. paper, what was the role? On paper, the role was uh, rehab director. And so that meant overseeing the day-to-day medical care of the athletes. Um, It was overseeing the... So the athletic trainer reported to me, we had a sports dietitian and we had a sports and clinical psychologist and a massage therapist. And then we also had a contracted chiropractor who would come in occasionally. And so all of those people... I was kind of in charge of setting up the player care and then uh, working alongside our performance director, which is a misnomer because he was really everything, right? He was the strength and conditioning coach, sports scientist, um, on field for all healthy athletes, doing pregame warmups and everything else. So um, working alongside him, but everything that had to do with player care and health. So that's on paper. Yes. <laughs> so that's what that sounds all rainbows and butterflies. Yeah. What was the cold hard truth though? Was that it was a lot more than that. There were a lot of times that, you know, we had one equipment manager. So some days where she had to go to the field earlier, stay late, I'm doing laundry, or I'm helping her hang up jerseys before a game. Or our team admin needs help picking up the rental cars when we land. So I'm going and driving a minivan full of players um, back from the airport to the hotel. Um, it's you show up in a place and the bus, for whatever reason, doesn't show up or they send you an eight-person limousine instead of a bus for an entire team of people. And so it's helping to problem solve. It's it's the day of the morning of a semifinal game and the field is waterlogged. And the grounds crew consists of three people who work in baseball and not soccer. And so it's you and the athletic trainer going out and helping to literally blow water off of the field and using mattress toppers from Home Depot to soak up water and (laughs) wring it out on the side of the pitch. Um, So you end up playing a lot of hats, especially um, during the season I was there. Uh, A lot of COVID um, protocols in place and being the COVID safety officer. <laughs> so a lot of different roles. So you just casually mentioned in that in that whole story what the job actually was. Had a limo once showed up instead of a bus. Yeah. What happened, what happened there? <laughs> so we, I guess the the bus company had the date wrong. What actually happened is they had the year wrong. So so there is no bus coming for us. So our uh, team admin called up the company and was like, hey, where's the bus? What's going on? And they realized their error is that they had written like 2020 instead of 2021 or whatever it was. So they never dispatched a bus to us. So they're like, well, we've got a guy in the area. We'll send him to you. It ended up being literally like an 8 to 12 person party bus. (laughs) That they hadn't cleaned from the previous ride. And now again, this is height of COVID protocols and restrictions. It's like, there's no way we, first of all, players won't fit. So 
<laughs> and also there's no way we're letting them get in there. So we had to send all of the players to the hotel in Ubers and we took all of the equipment. It was head coach, assistant coach, goalkeeper coach, myself, team admin, equipment manager, and athletic trainer, just loading all of the equipment into this party bus that had like glow sticks hanging from it and then trying to get everything to the hotel. <laughs> that's that's one of the better stories I've heard behind the scenes. Yeah, that was a fun one. <laughs> and just like just to remind ourselves here, like this is professional women's soccer. I had to remind myself of that often. You know, like this is the top tier of this sport in this country outside of the U.S. Women's National Team. And you have a party, a dirty party bus with glow sticks showing up. Yes. What other, right? Like, cause I got, let's back this up, mm-hmm. right? Cause especially nowadays with the college setting, having the NIL. Mm-hmm. And then also I would imagine a lot of women's soccer players in college that do make it to the pros are coming from power five. Yeah. So I, is it fair to say that some of them actually took a step back in facilities and setup compared to what they were getting at the college level? So another thing that I had to do in my role was um, I ordered all of the gym equipment. Now, our gym was a rented classroom in a local high school that had no windows. It was a standard classroom. And because we were renting it, we weren't allowed to make any permanent changes to it. So I ordered gym flooring because working out on classroom carpet is just the least inspiring thing out there. (laughs) So we ordered gym flooring And then I had to try to roll it out. So the performance director, myself, and the athletic trainer are trying to roll out and cut this gym flooring. Now, we couldn't um, glue it down in any way because that was a permanent change that we weren't allowed to do. So the gym floor would constantly buckle and shift, and I would always be, like, rolling it out again every couple of gym sessions. And so being in the gym with these athletes where we had one squat rack, this gym floor that was that was a trip hazard to be fair um we had like the bare necessities of what we needed like we we could do we could do it effectively but knowing that they came from like top schools in the country that for sure was a step back for them like the facilities that they've had in college are far and above what most of them will ever have in the NWSL in today's world that's, that's got to be a tough sell because now I would imagine if, right, if I'm in their shoes, it might make sense to stay in for the four years. I don't know if that's like popular. Do the, do the women leave early? It's like- not. It's getting more popular now for them to either leave after one year or just not go the college route at all. Yeah, um, there's some players. Who, so I guess Lindsay Horan was probably one of the first ones who did that, just went pro without going to college. Um, Sophia Smith either didn't finish college or um, didn't start it, but there's been a number of players now. So Trinity Robin is a good example of just going pro right away. So I think there's a number of players now that are starting to do it more and more, Um, but it's definitely not the norm. The norm is still finish four years of college. Okay, that makes sense. So then with, right, so they had, I would imagine in college, they had a lot of tech available to them. Mm -hmm. And I know you are managing probably nine different hats at this point. Mm -hmm. Was was tech present within the role that you did? Let's just say, let's break it into two branches. We'll consider return to play at one level, mm-hmm. and then we'll consider, let's just say, wellness and performance on the other. 
yeah. wellness and performance first? So one of the first things that I did in the role was recognize our limitations. And so we brought on, uh, we actually brought on Kitman Labs pretty early on in our process to be like our athlete monitoring system. And they were really helpful in filling a void that was very present in our setting. Um, so we didn't... Like we had a staff of three people who were there full-time, athletic trainer, myself, and our performance director. And so having that resource available to us was huge. And so we did have, like we had a Nord board that we would use for monitoring purposes. Same thing with force plates that we used for monitoring purposes that was led by our performance director. Um, and they would there's the Kitman app that the athletes would log in and do their subjective wellness um, RPEs after sessions. So we did have that and we're able to monitor it. Um, it just took a lot of time um, and energy from our staff that um, didn't take away from what we did with the athletes, but just added to a very long day already. <laughs> and then on, on on the return to play side also, like the GPS units and heart rate monitors and, you know, any time. So there was a period of time where our performance director um, had surgery and had to recover from that. And so wasn't able to come into work for some time. And so I quickly had to learn how to, how to cut data for the, from the GPS system, um, was on the phone. Actually, U.S. Soccer was really helpful in this scenario. Their sports scientists were on the phone with me, talking me through things. So it was great for my development because I learned so many different skills within a very short time frame, just out of necessity. But it was a very long day to get in in the morning. You're checking in on what the player's objective wellness is. You're then trying to be there so that you're greeting athletes first thing because really what matters is those touch points with the athletes and developing trust and, and a relationship with them. Then going into a coach's meeting to get the final session plan, see what athletes could do and what they couldn't do based on injury status checking in with the athletic trainer to see if there are any new complaints that we didn't know of already, final check-in with coaching staff for final numbers for the session, then going out to the field, setting up the warm-up, setting up the GPS systems, laying out GPS and heart rate monitors for every athlete, running that session live, right after the session, cutting the data, then having to go into a gym session, then sending that data back to the coaching staff so that they knew what happened from a physical perspective and could help plan accordingly for the following days. So <laughs> all of that for one or two people to do. And I want to provide context here. That all happened in a matter of, say it was 11 o'clock practice. That all happened in a matter of two hours? Oh, I mean, all of that happened from, I tried to get there really early to help plan better, but there's only so many hours in a day. But yeah, most of it happened in a in a two three hour time period. That's, and this is the service that we're providing at the professional level for sport, when we're trying to get them to be the best of the best. Yeah. So, like looking back on it, like were there things that you wish you could have done differently, or are there things that you wish you had access to to help them be in a better space there? I think a lot of what I wish we had which we had access to in order to help the athletes be best were just more staff, right? Because if you have an overburdened staff, um, you're not showing up at your best for the athletes, right? If you have a, a overstretched staff, we're only human beings. We're, we're going to be stressed out at times. And it's my like, 
really firm belief that you have to show up at your best for the athletes every day. Um, you should have, you should be consistent in how you show up for the athletes because we're ultimately there to support their performance. And if you're not at your best day in, day out, then how can they possibly do that? Um, we're asking them to be at their best every day. Like that should be the standard from staff as well. But if you're under-resourced, that's a really tall order. That's a tough ask on on a very under-resourced staff. Um, so I wish there were just more of us. I also wish facilities were better because that would have been so much easier if we had our gym in a training facility where we could then go out onto the pitch. It would be a lot easier, whereas now I'm trying to do a rehab session during a team training session because that's literally the only time of the day that I have to do that now because I have 12 other things to do before and after. Um, So there are things that probably could have been better, but I think what the staff was able to do with what we had was top level. So I'm proud of that. Um, I just wish we had more resources. Absolutely. Like you're not, you're not the first story like to share that, right? Cause like how many, unless, unless you are in, let's say some of the top leagues on the men's side, right? Luckily for me, in the, being in the NBA, I mean, resources are unlimited. Mm-hmm. Uh, staffing is unlimited. You need something, we get it done. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, if we don't get it done, the players have the resources to do it for themselves right. on the outside. So f- I remember my short stint in NWSL with Orlando, and I remember the exact same thing. It's like, how do you transition the high-level care that the men are getting and then provide it for the women, which is, it's, it's, it's growing, mm-hmm. but it's still not there yet for everything that you just shared. As there's no, there's no way you can compare apples to apples here right? B- between the men's and the women's professional leagues. Yes. And that's really frustrating. <laughs> I would imagine. Right. And it's like, what are, like, what do you think of the next steps to get there are? I think you have to invest in the staff because what happens is there's a high rate of staff turnover year to year because you're under-resourced, so you're overstretched, and also you're not being compensated what you can get paid somewhere else, right? And ultimately, that's one of the reasons that I left in, in full transparency is you can get paid, you can get compensated so much better for the value that you provide, and it's hard to stay in a setting where you're working nonstop for the entirety of the season and not being feel not feel like you're being valued for that. Um, so it's frustrating because there are so many good practitioners and good coaches who want to be there and want to make a difference, but it's not at a sustainable place right now to keep those people there. So it ends up being a lot of people's first professional jobs. You know, that was, that's true for me. It was my first job in pro sport and that's fine but how do you guarantee that you're keeping the best people then? And that's ultimately what the league has to go to. You have to keep the best people so that the athletes get the best support. As a challenge. It is a challenge. It requires money and investment. <laughs> I don't have that, unfortunately. I was like, give you all my money. Because I do have some, there are still players in that I follow. And I do, I do wish that they continue to have those resources because... Ultimately, they're trying to perform at their best. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what anyone that goes wants to be a professional athlete. just want to perform at their best. Yeah. So the other, you know, component of sports I think you and I have both experienced is kind of like, I like to call the business side of sports, Mm -hmm. which I think drastically influences what we have to do on a day-to-day. And it's not often that it's talked about because you only know what you know once you're inside the space. Right. So from like a business side of uh, sport, right, like trades happen, 
rumors happen on nowadays on Twitter, on mm -hmm. social, right? So from your perspective, you ever had, you know, experiences when, let's just say there was information out there that you were aware of that affected your job, and then also maybe information that was out there that the player didn't know, but you were aware of? Yeah, there were for sure times that we would know that a player was going to be traded, um, but it's not known to the player yet or maybe some final contract details are going through or that we knew a player was going to be coming to us, but the player didn't know that yet from you know, the player who would be coming in. And so ideally you'd be getting information from them and information from their team. But if the details haven't gone through, it's not finalized, then you put that deal in that potential contract in jeopardy. So you can't do that from a business perspective. So the gold standard would be everyone's transparent and knows that this is happening. You get all the information you need because that's providing the highest standard of care is that you get their full medical and injury history. Um, that almost never gets to happen because it, the trades happen last minute, day of, day before. So yeah, there are definitely times that we knew an athlete was either going to be leaving or coming in, but the athlete didn't know yet. And so we couldn't talk about it, couldn't say anything about it. And so if it's an athlete who's, currently rehabbing and you know they're going to get traded, it's really hard to continue that relationship because you do form good relationships with athletes if you're doing it the right way um, when you're spending a lot of time with them during a rehab process. And so to know, to have that information and not be able to share that is tough. It's really hard. Um, but something that kind of always stuck with me was Actually, I think it was a conversation I was having with my husband where he was like, well, what's being really like patient-centered or athlete-centered, right? Like, yes, you want to tell them because you believe in transparency, but is what's best for the athlete for you to be the person telling them that? Probably not. Like, that's probably not what's best for the athlete. So I was actually being a little bit selfish in my thoughts of like, oh, I wish I could tell them or I wish they knew this. That's what I want but that might not necessarily be what's best for the athlete. And so I think just trying to shift that mindset of like, is this what's best for the athlete or is this just a project projection of my desires? And where did you come to with that? I came to like, um, there's always going to be things where what's best for the athlete sometimes lines up with what's best for the club, sometimes doesn't line up with what's best for the club. Like, sure, it's going to be best for an athlete to stay in a club that has all-star players and coaching that are going to help develop them, but that's not always what's best for the club to move forward. And so I think it can be easy to fall into the mind trap of that, like, okay, the club pays me, so now what's best for the club is best for me, but that's not what's best for the athlete. And thinking that there's, like, a dichotomy there, but... It, I tried to make a shift in, okay, if the athlete's not going to get playing time here, if the athlete um, is, isn't going to really develop here, or if there's an opportunity for them to have that somewhere else, maybe that is what's athlete-driven. And so just kind of being more, I guess, flexible in what my mindset around being athlete-centered is. <laughs> That's tough. It's a tough place to live, because right? It's, it's, it's a part of what we do being an inside sport because the reality is, like I use this analogy, <clears throat> in a lot of other businesses, your assets aren't people. Mm. But in sports, your assets are people. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard, like you said, when you when you develop relationships with these people, when you develop relationships with the players, the people, there's a, there's a person behind that, right? Yeah. And it's tough when, like you said, those situations where 
there may be a rumor, there may be information coming on the pipeline, but you still have to show up and be your authentic self. Yes. Like how, how did you do that in those times? Like how did you get past that um, projection inside you, mm-hmm. but that still showed up to do the job that day? I think it always just came down to what does the athlete need for me in this moment? Right. And asking myself that regularly and being critical in what my answer to that was. That makes that means you have to be aware of unconscious biases. It has to means that you have to be aware of what your values as a person are and what means the most to you um, and how how you authentically show up then. So if if you show up and you're trying to be your authentic self and let's say you fully believe, like I fully believe in transparency. And so there is kind of a, an inner conflict there of, I know things, I know that this athlete's going to get traded in the spirit of transparency. I want them to know this too. Um, but again, just going back to making myself answer the question, what does the athlete need from me right now? They just need support. And so if when they find out that they're getting traded, they might need someone to talk to about it. Then I can show up for them. It's not my job, though. It's not my role to be the person who tells them about that because that's not what they need. They need to hear that from the coaching staff so that they can ask follow-up questions. Why am I being traded? What's the purpose of this? Um, what before, Or if I'm going on loan, what do you hope for me to accomplish? Things that I can't answer. And so really, I'm just giving them a half truth. And so now I go back to my value of transparency. Well, if I go and be the person who's like, oh yeah, by the way, I heard this rumor you're going to get traded. That's not transparency because that's just a half truth that I know. That's no more than hearsay and a rumor. Like, yes, it might come from the GM, but that, like it's still just hearsay at that point until it becomes finalized. So I think just being really critical with yourself and, and having that reflective piece of is this genuinely what is best for the athlete and then being aware of your unconscious biases when answering it. And that's tough too because we all have bias. Yes, but everyone does, but you just have to try to be aware of what they are. And then make sure they don't bite you in the butt in the end. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the one thing I struggle with sometimes is the, when they do get traded, the continuity of care. Mm. Right. So like, let's use a scenario here. Right. There's, you know, athlete may get traded twice in a calendar year. Right. For two different teams. Yes, you have communication when that trade goes down. But ultimately, once they're in the hands of another team, they may be on a totally different training program. They may be on a totally different philosophy of what training and health and performance may be. So from that perspective, like, have you one, have you ever faced that challenge? And then two, like, where do we go to better serve and like upgrade the health and performance of the athletes in those situations? That's, if I knew the answer to that, that would be ideal. Yeah, that has for sure happened where an athlete gets traded or put on loan. And then when they're on loan, it's different because you still have a level of control over what it is that they do. Can you explain what the difference between a trade, because this this really only exists in soccer. Yeah, fair. Trades versus loans. So what's Mm -hmm. the difference in the context of the sport of soccer, a trade versus loan? Yeah, so if an athlete goes on loan, there's still owned by your club, but they're playing for another team. So usually that happens um, in on the women's side anyway, in a different league or a different country altogether. Um, in like the Premier League, they can go on loan to another team in the same league and then you end up playing against your team. And I'm, I've never worked in the Premier League, so I don't know how it works in that scenario. 
But in the NWSL, we've had players go on loan to clubs in France or Sweden or wherever else. And so you still have a level of control over if there was ever an injury, the first call is our medical team for our club to try to handle that and take care of it and provide care. Um, the athlete can still follow our program. A lot of times we would say, okay, as long as you're hitting you know, these tick marks, it's all good and you can do what your team is doing. Because um, we also don't want to isolate them from from what they're from the team culture, so that's a loan. A trade is this player is no longer on your team; they're fully on another team. So your your working relationship with them is done. Um, so then you no longer have any say, and that's kind of a tri- like a really tricky scenario because if you have put a lot of time and effort into and you've identified what maybe some of their injury history is and therefore risk factors for another injury or you've just gotten to know them and so you know how they move, you know what maybe some, for lack of a better term, weak links are that you're trying to improve on with them. You know what their goals and ambitions are and now for them to have to start all over again somewhere else, that's really difficult on the athlete. It's really difficult on both staffs. So um, I think as long as you have the athletes consent to share all of that. I think a phone call with the next staff is crucial. And bearing in mind, everyone has the same ultimate goal, and that's to support the athletes to the best of our abilities. And so then just putting ego aside and having that phone call, hey, yeah, this is what I've been working on with this athlete. This is what we've been trying to build here with them. This is what's important for them. This is what we've been tracking and monitoring and measuring. Um, These are some of our goals that we're aiming for, you know, then, then do with, do with that as you see fit. But it's difficult when you're in a league where maybe um, they don't have the same resources available to them that the club they've just come from had. And so maybe they don't have a full-time physical therapist on staff and they're a rehab case and now they're being outsourced somewhere else, no longer part of the team, uh, the team setting when they're rehabbing where they were with us. And it's difficult. It's hard. I don't have an answer for it because... Um, you're never going to get alignment across all the different clubs. And so I think our role then is just to be aware of that. And when we're working with athletes, know those possibilities exist and prepare them for that as best you can. And what I mean by that is really being athlete-centered in this case and saying the best thing that we can provide for them is education, right? And anything else that we do on top of that, great. Of course, we're going to you know, give them a program that's as individualized as we can, identifying their risk factors and addressing those. But we need to educate them along the way on why we're doing these certain things. Um, What a good way to go about doing that is, what are some alternatives if you no longer have this available to you? That way, when they do move on, they have a level of awareness about what it is that they need. I dig it. (laughs) I'm curious about this, though, because I've talked about this with a player or two in the past, right? So like like in in the sport of soccer, in order to be a head coach, you have to have a certain licensure, mm-hmm. right? In order for us to be a PT, you have to have a certain licensure, mm-hmm. right? So the thought is, well, because players get traded so often or there's a lack of continuity of care, what if the league adopted a philosophy or school of thought that, hey, these are the standards that every team must, must go through from a, let's say, a medical eval, PT eval, performance eval. Mm-hmm. And so I have two questions on this one. With your, or your, your perspective, because I'm just curious, because this thought comes up a couple of times. Like, one, is it feasible, right? From just like, hey, like, could we logistically get this done? But then, two, like the business side of all these different philosophies out there and what people believe in and their likes and dislikes, is it even worth the time? Yeah, and then another, like, sub-question that would be, like, 
if there's different commercial contracts with the club and, you know, a, a brand and they want to use all their products and no other club is doing that, right? Like that's mm-hmm. a whole other aspect of it too. Um, I think that on, on a basic foundational level it is feasible and, and should potentially be something we aim for. I know like in the NWSL at least there are certain certain standards that the league tries to implement in terms of who you hire for certain positions. Um, and that standard does keep increasing year after year. So that's, that's progress and that's good. Um, I do, th- the, the league also always puts out like, okay, this is what the preseason medical needs to look like. Um, so there are certain things in place. I don't think that you can, and maybe even shouldn't try to make everything completely aligned um, because then that kind of dampens innovation and growth and and development of of how you implement performance and and health interventions and metrics right so if you're going to say across the board this is how it has to be and you're uber prescriptive in that then you're not allowing people to find novel ways of doing things and you get stuck in the, well, this is the way that we do it. This is the way we've always done it. This is what the league thinks is best. Um, But I do think there can be a foundation level of minimum requirements. What do you think those should be? Oh, that's a good question. From a health perspective, there obviously needs to be a level of like, is this person medically healthy enough to play, right? Um, and, and making sure you're screening for that. And I think that the preseason medical does that well. Um, I think there, I don't know how you could possibly say everyone needs to use, I guess you say everyone needs to use GPS and heart rate for training sessions, but then you'd have to be really sure in the value of that, right? And and is there anything that everyone in the league could agree on provides a gold standard level of value? I don't know that you could. Yeah, I think you run into the problem with too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. And too many thoughts. And because I, I and the reason I ask like it's always it's always a conversation. Like mm-hmm. some people say yes, some people say no. Because the reality is like do you like you said, do you want to have everyone be mainstreamed and continuity of care is great, but then you sacrifice the innovation and the creativity that clubs that may have the resources or the personnel in place, they do their due diligence at their own investment, mm-hmm. then they can kind of give themselves that competitive edge. And I think that's the the continuously confounding factor is, well, if everyone's the same, what's the competitive edge yeah. from health and performance? Because there's definitely some competitive edge out there depending on what you believe in and what you program. Yeah, I will say like my thoughts on that are, again, going back to the value of transparency, if there's something that a club does for, for like, the health of athletes and and the medical side that you find to be really helpful in reducing re-injury rates, as an example, or or increasing player availability, um, I think that those things should be shared with other teams in the league, right? I think if you're going to have, like, I know the NWSL um, and a lot of other leagues have a league-wide medical conference to start off the year or to end the year. And I think that those things should be shared. I don't think that we should try to hoard information on player care and well-being and health as a competitive edge. If there's performance things, like, sure, fine, you can keep that as your competitive edge. But anything having to do with 
rehabbing or um, injury management or injury risk reduction strategies even, I th- like, why would you not share that with people across the board? You know, that that to me is, I get the competitive edge aspect of it, um, but I think we need to separate medical and healthcare from like performance advantages. See, that's the altruism, altruism in you right there. Because the reality, <laughs> because the reality is, like, I'm gonna be devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. That's game. That's uh, games missed, days missed. That's true. Right. Which so, impacts. So if our, yeah. if our, if my club can do a better job than you at days missed, games missed, we have more player availability. The coach has more opportunity to put the best roster out there. Mm-hmm. Versus you're unable to do. You're able to have more. You have more days missed, more games missed. Well, now you're at less player availability. So now like, right. Cause I think that's where, you know, the question of how do we judge our success, which is such a hard mm. thing to do in our space because injuries happen and you can't predict them. You can try to manage the risk of it, but the reality is they're going to happen. So a number of injuries doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but it's more like, Hey, how many days were they available this year? Maybe that is powerful there. So the, the only caveat to that is like, the, I hear the altruistic mindset and ideology, but then it's, well, if I can reduce the amount of games missed, that's a competitive edge from the medical side too. Right. What are your thoughts there? No, that's definitely true. Um, I think when it comes to like number of days missed though, like maybe that's one where it's like, if you're finding a way to get them back a little bit faster and it's still like their risk of re-injury is still the same as it would have been otherwise, um, that's a competitive edge and that's I think that's fine. I'm talking about like, hey, we've been, here's the framework that we've been using. We've found it really helpful. Now, how you implement it, of course, like there's gonna be people who are more skilled at that than others. And if that's your edge, you have the best people doing that and applying that framework, then that's great. I think there needs to be a minimum of, and I guess that goes back to your initial question, what is that minimum foundation that everyone is aligned on? And then you can find competitive edges from those. I guess it would just have to come down to like, are you going through that evidence-based funnel, right? Like, are you using the best evidence that's out there? Are you then also getting people with clinical expertise that's valuable? And then addressing the the athletes, in this case, expectations and belief system. Um, and if everyone's doing that, because I think that pro sport is a space where we're susceptible to not utilizing evidence-based care because we lean a lot on athlete beliefs and expectations, which is fine. It's part of that funnel. It's part of that process. But if we make that the main thing and then kind of forget about best practice and clinical expertise, um, then that's where we potentially go wrong. And maybe as long as everyone's steering towards best clinical practice, um, Maybe that's the foundation, and I don't know how you measure that. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think you do. One thing you hit on I want to rewind to is you started throwing out evidence-based practice, mm-hmm. started throwing out methodology, but then you finished with athletes' belief systems. Mm-hmm. And in professional sports, we deal with that a lot because the one thing I don't think those looking on the outside end realize is, especially nowadays, the way that health and performance starts at such a young age, training, knowledge, everything from as early as 10, 11, 12 years old, by the time they get to us, they may have 10, 12, 15 years of exposure to training and rehab. And so their perspective matters. But how do you handle the situation where their perspective may not be valid in a certain situation, given either 
their methods and thoughts are outdated or the research is caught up or mm. you point blank just disagree based on the context of what's being asked. Yeah, I think it always comes down to, first of all, it's a conversation. It's two human beings who ultimately have the same goal. And I think the most important thing you can do is get the athletes to believe that you have, uh, you genuinely care about the same things they do, right? You, ultimately, you both want the athlete back performing as best they can in as healthy a body as possible. So as long as the athlete truly believes that from you, then you can you actually have a platform to build off of from there. So then you can um, meet them where they're at because there is still a level of meeting expectations and getting that buy-in and trust, but then educating along the way because um, it might be that their father is a healthcare provider and he's always done this, like you're not going to violate what their father tells them, right? Like you're not going to go against that. So how do you use that while also educating them? And I think that's an important concept in pro sport is you have these athletes around you all the time, right? We kind of have unlimited time with them in some situations. And so it doesn't have to be a no, but it can be a yes. And so I really believe in, and I'll just throw any, it could be anything. I really believe that granulating helps me. I really believe that cupping helps me. I really believe that taping helps me. I really believe the massage helps me. Whatever it is, I really believe the exercise helps me. Whatever it is, and let's say that evidence doesn't really support that, hasn't caught up, whatever the case may be. Okay, we can do this and we'll do what I know is actually going to help. Um, I think it's actually one of the only settings where we really can do that you know, outpatient setting, you have limited time and resources, so you can't always do that. But in pro sport, we do have that. So as long as you've got their trust and buy-in, meet them where they're at, it can always be a yes and scenario. So I hear, I hear that expression a lot, meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Got to get trust, got to get buy-in. Uh, how do you do it? Day to day, I think that there's no one way to do that and it might be different for each athlete. So the way that I get that with one athlete might be different than how I get it with another athlete. So an example is if um, we had an athlete who was getting, who got traded to us while she was injured in the off season. Um, So I knew that I would be working with her for a long time based on her injury. So I knew that that relationship had to start immediately. So it's reaching out right away, showing that I care, demonstrating how I care day in and day out. Ultimately, you build trust by creating a level of psychological safety, and you do that by consistent behaviors. And so if they see me act the same way to them every day, show up the same way for them, they can feel that it's authentic. And this was probably one of my strengths, but also one of my flaws in that space is I cared so deeply about the sport and so deeply about the athletes that there was no way that wasn't going to come across. And so once they, it's that Maya Angelou quote, right? Like people you know, will always remember how you make them feel like that I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but it's, they may forget what you say, they might forget what you do, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so if you really let them know and they can feel how much you care about them um, and how much you want them to succeed, like they're going to trust you then. Like I, I don't, I guess I don't really know how to explain a framework for building trust other than consistently showing up with the 
truest of intentions because if you're there, it's because you want to be there, right? If you're if you're working in that space, it's because you want to be there and you want to be helping them. What about those that that don't last, right? Those that don't last, those that are in it for the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, what have you noticed in their behaviors maybe that can kind of help the next generation not make those mistakes? I think athletes see through that right away, to be fair. And you are never going to get buying and trust from athletes, especially women's soccer players. They see that so fast because there, unfortunately, there are a number of, of professionals who use it. Like I said, it's usually somebody's first job in pro sport and they use that as a springboard to something else. Or when I worked in the league, I was hiring for a, couple, a number of different roles and we would get a lot of practitioners, men and women, from men's sports who came in almost with this like savior complex. Like, oh, I worked in the MLS so I can help the NWSL get more professional. Well, like we don't need your solutions. We need what's going to work for, for this space. Um, so I, I just think that athletes see through it right away. If you don't have, if your genuine intentions are not to make the athletes be the best versions of themselves, then in women's soccer, at least, like don't even bother getting involved because they won't trust you and then you won't last. So it's not going to be an enjoyable time for any of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they definitely will. And we and I, I've seen that in my experience where those that last are the ones that are, like you said, like the words that I was hearing were consistent, authentic, because the reality is these guys, these men and women may be pulled in different directions because in this country, in society, athletes are, are respected and they're desirable people to be around. Looking ahead, right, we talked about kind of your space, where you've been, where you've come from, how you've managed the pro sport setting, kind of like looking ahead, right, to the next generation and also helping those be successful in this space, right? Like one mantra that comes to mind for me, like working with the athlete is because there's so much noise, like helping them find their small wins, right? So on that note, like, do you have, do you feel that you have to constantly help them find their small wins? Oh, absolutely. And I think like the small wins is huge, especially in a, in a rehab scenario where it's long-term goals are provider driven. They're, they're provider centered. We do that because it's our North star of where we need the program to go. But telling an athlete who just got off the operating table that, hey, in a 11 months' time, we're going to be getting you at peak velocity, <laughs> like that means <laughs> nothing to them right now, right? And so you need that because you need to have a long-term plan in place for planning purposes. But the small wins are the short-term goals, are, are the day-to-day, hey, you got up out of bed without help today awesome, that's better than yesterday. Or, hey, the swelling is down. You have full range of motion back now. You're not using crutches anymore. Hey, we're putting your soccer shoes on today. Like all of those small wins need to be celebrated for the athlete's sake because they need those, like I said, those small wins to help keep them going. So I I always think that's kind of like my mindset is long-term goals are great, but they're very provider-centered. Short-term goals are needed because they're athlete-centered. I, I like that perspective because mm-hmm. you're right. The We know what we're doing on the long term, but on the short term, all they're seeing is I'm not out there playing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, seg- I'm separate from what they're doing. And I think helping anyone, not just athletes, but just like anyone in life, help find your 
your, your daily small wins just kind of keeps the ball moving forward. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, do you have a mantra for yourself? I think, yeah, no. I think you do. <laughs> right? like, what is like, what is yours that keeps you going forward? My biggest mantra for myself that I find myself repeating all the time is calm, consistent, curious. Um, and we talked a little bit before about building trust with athletes and I mentioned consistent behaviors. And I think on top of that being calm feeds into that or being composed could be another word for that. Calm flew, was better flow in in the mantra for me than composed. Um, So I think things happen. Things happen that are out of our control all of the time. And in a sport like women's soccer, you know, things happen where I'm getting water off of a pitch, a bus doesn't show up and all of the, somebody gets COVID on a, on a three week long away trip and you have to now manage this. Things happen, like um, disasters happen, crises happen that you have to manage. If athletes see you react strongly emotionally um, in those scenarios, they see you react to stress, that is going to impact them. I don't care how far removed you think you are from it, from the athlete, they feel that. If you are stressed and there's tension in the locker room, that has there's no other outcome other than it affecting the athletes. And so again, being really athlete-centered, you have to have self-management skills in, okay, something happened, take a breath, start getting into problem-solving mode and stay really calm about it. You, they can't see you fly off the handle. So that also feeds into consistency, showing up consistently for the athletes so that it develops trust, that they feel psychological safety around you. So that they, an athlete knows, I know that if I go to Nicole with this, she'll give me this objective feedback or, or I know she'll put her arm around me and tell me it's okay and, and give me some confidence. Or I know that it could be, I know she's going to tell me to get over it, get back out on the field. And maybe that's what they need right now. But either way, they know that they can trust the response from you. Um, So that's what, to me, being consistent is. And then curious is all about, like, you're never going to have all of the answers. The athletes, more often than not, will have the answers. Um, And I think just having a level of humility and staying curious about things, that also feeds into how you interact with other staff. If a staff member makes a mistake or something goes wrong, instead of reacting and placing blame. Why did you do that? Like, what were you thinking? To say, okay, what was the context into the decision that was made? And why was that the decision that was taken? Okay, now I'm understanding a little bit more about this scenario. What are some ways that we could have gone about that a little bit better? That also goes into player care and player management, right? If you know that it's going to be a really difficult session, a really hard session, or um, you know that it's a day that we have to hit... um, you know, peak velocity, max speed in order, you know, because that's part of the program. But an athlete's maybe not feeling it or whatever the scenario might be. I think just going to an athlete and having the conversation and being curious about what their perspective is goes a long way with them, makes them feel like they have some say in it um, and just goes into building that trust for the future. You hit on so many like subtle notes. And, like the one that the resounding message I kept hearing was like nothing that you said right there was anything about like the technical tactical aspect mm-hmm. of the X's and O's of the job. Because like one thing that I think we you know, you're in this space. I think where the education system is good enough, where most people will get the job done. Mm-hmm. But like that's not the key to success. No. Like what are the like you hit you said calm, consistent, curious. Right? I think those are brilliant because mm-hmm. especially curiosity. I think if we live life curiously, you'll have less conflict. Mm-hmm. Truthfully. 
Um, so besides like the X's and O's of being skilled, cause let's not, let's like, I know we're talking a lot about not that, but like, let's, let's give it credit. Like you gotta be good at what you do. Yes. You have to be good at what you do. Cause if you don't and you're not confident and you're not getting the job done, Hey, like this isn't the space for you. Mm-hmm. So let's not, not acknowledge that. Exactly. Right. But there's plenty of talented people that haven't survived this space. Yes. Right. So for those that want to be in this space and want the opportunities, and also we have to give them the opportunities too. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that look like for them? You have to be flexible and adaptable. Um, you can have the best laid rehab plan known to mankind. It can be the most evidence-based, objective, criteria-based, all of that. It means absolutely nothing if you can't get the athletes to trust that that's the best plan. If you can't have a conversation with coaching staff about why that's a good plan, if you can't have a good conversation with coaching staff and athletes about their goals, then your plan means nothing. If you aren't adaptable enough to say, hey, well, this was the plan, but now it's snowing, so now we have to train indoors, which means our GPS metrics are not going to work today. Um, you have to be adaptable and say, okay, we're not going to just do nothing, right? Let, let me go talk to the coaches. Let me go talk to the athletes. You have to be able to bend that. I, I always think of it in terms of like everything should have a structure and a framework, but it has to be very flexible framework. It can't be rigid because if you try to live being too rigid in this space, you'll collapse. Like you need to have that. You have to be earthquake proof, you know, um, living in LA, that's what we know here. Um, so I would say the number one skill other than the hard skills, which you need to have, um, you need to be flexible and adaptable. Yes. Cause I, you see these guys, you see these ladies or, or guys every day. But this environment's never the same, Mm-mm. right? Because you got the road, you got the practice facility, you got the game arena, you got the snow, you got the rain, you got the earthquakes, mm-hmm. right? It's never like, oh, I'm going to go into the clinic and I have the same tables. I have the same, okay, 30, 60 minutes with them, right? And you can kind of have your plan and you don't have to budge from it really, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's a big difference too. Like, is there anything else that you've seen where clinicians have come into the space? And, or let me just ask you this, I'm a clinician yourself, mm-hmm. you came into the space, what was some expectations you had that wasn't the reality? <laughs> I genuinely thought that every, maybe the start of every week, I would get a document from the coaching staff about what exactly the session was going to look like. <laughs> Which, like, to be fair, sometimes did happen. Yeah. But then you show up to the training session and it can be very different than what it was on paper. Um, so that was something I didn't quite account for initially. So here I have this great plan. And for me, you know, we talked about it was as very small staff. And so with the long-term rehabs, when we're doing an on-field rehab, um, when we're on the on-pitch portion of that rehab, I try, even from the beginning, I tried to get the athletes in with the team as much as possible. Just psychologically, I think that that helped them come a long way. It helped them get to understand the tactics that the coach was asking of the team, helped them connect with their teammates better. All those things that are missing when an athlete is injured and isolated from the team. Um, So it was pertinent to me that I know what the team was going to be doing in training so that I could say, okay, based on where this athlete's at in her rehab, she can do the passing patterns today. But as soon as you add that defender, I'm going to pull her out and having those conversations with coaching staff. So now if you go in with the expectation that you're always going to know what those plans are, that's very rarely the case. So it takes that flexibility. And just being like a, a, 
an emotionally intelligent human being and being able to connect with people, I don't think there should ever really be this. Now, granted, there's extremes. I get that. But for most people, most scenarios, there shouldn't be the situation of butting heads with coaching staff. Because again, everyone has the same goals. And I think the more that you stress that, then you just see what other people's perspectives are on how you achieve those goals. But baseline understanding that the goals are the same. And so going into a conversation with a coaching staff and saying, hey, we're trying to get so-and-so back so that they're available for this game. What's going on in training today? Tell me exactly what you're planning, and then I can tell you what they're able to do or not do. Um, and that'll change coaching staff to coaching staff, of course, but that was my approach and something I had to change slightly. <laughs> I get that. Do you ever feel um, the pressure? The pressure from needing to get someone back sooner, right? Like how, how often does it happen where you're working on a rehab case and they're almost there? Mm-hmm. Circumstances happen. This player needs to be ready tomorrow. Yeah. Right? There's the pressure to get this person back quicker, right? So it's just like it's this double-edged sword of, yes, the team needs this, but then also what does the health of this athlete need? Right? Mm-hmm. How do you balance that pressure? Yeah, I always framed that, again, as a conversation first with the athlete um, to understand how they're feeling about a situation, what their actual desires and needs and goals are, and also a, converse, a honest, transparent conversation with coaching staff and any other stakeholders involved, management as an example. And so we did have that scenario where an athlete was slightly underbaked. Um, we could see objectively based on what she had done in training in the weeks prior, um, where she was modified to some extent, but what she had done was about 70% of her typical match load. So we felt confident enough to say, like, she could probably handle 70% of the game, right? Because she's done that the past two weeks in training. And now this is a big game for the player for whatever the contextual reasons are behind that. It's a rival, whatever else. Big game for the player, she is adamant that she's playing in this game. Another scenario that came up all the time was it's a week or two before a national team was going to be selecting players for their next camp. So the player is adamant that they're playing in a game to show that they should be selected for the national team. And so I don't think our job as a medical staff most of the time is to consistently say, if you're the no person all the time, which medical staff, we have to be sometimes, but if you're always the no person, they're never going to trust you. They're not going to come to you. They're not going to try to find solutions with you because they now don't trust that your goals align with theirs. But if you are the yes, yes, they can do this. I'm not saying that she can play 100% of the game, but yes, she can play. And then finding a solution for that. So it was Here's what we think she's prepared for based on what she's done. Here's the risk, right? If she plays in this game, there's always a risk. So let's look at the next two or three games. Let's look at the next six to eight weeks. If the worst happens, and are you okay with the risk of not having her for these following games? If everyone's okay with that risk-reward ratio... I've done my job in informing them. That's the level of informed consent. I've informed the athlete and the rest of the stakeholders what the risks are, but it's not my job to tell you that your risk-reward ratio is wrong. That's, that's your own personal values and beliefs. I've just told you what the risks are, which I think is our role. It's, it's always a challenging conversation to have. You want to, I think your, your perspective on 
yes, you can, like, and mm-hmm. not the but, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, you can, and I love that. I love that mentality because, like you said, if you always say no, you don't have credibility with them. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. Right? It's like you're constantly like, oh, I know what I'm going to get from that person. Like, why am I even going to ask or try and mm-hmm. work with this person? Because ultimately, I think, I think it's always a, every conversation is a negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything is. Someone's going to get something out of it. You're going to get something out of it, too. So I think that perspective is just the truth behind what it really happens. Like, I don't think, yes, there are those moments where it is a perfect scenario. Mm-hmm. Where like, hey, everybody is on board. We had the time. We got all the metrics we needed. But then more often than not, it's the opposite. Yeah. And it's that give and take, like how much risk are we? Like, what's the context of what needs to needs to happen? Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately for me, it's most importantly, do no harm. Yeah. And if you do no harm, and then after that, it's just a matter of risk. I think, like you said, it just depends on what the athletes want to take or the organizations want to take. Exactly. And don't get me wrong. There are for sure times that you have to say no for the athlete's best interest. Um, I was really fortunate that the coaching staffs that I worked with were really supportive, really bought in. And I, I, like I struggled to come up with an example of a time that they just told, like, they just flat out were like, no, this athlete's playing. I don't care what you say. Like, that that literally never happened with yeah. the coaches I worked with. So that, first of all, like, that's massive. You can't be a successful provider in that, in that space without a supportive coaching staff. Like, that's a really tall order. Um, so that collaboration is everything. Now, there were times that a player had been uh, with their national team for two weeks but didn't play or... or we felt that they were coming in um, underbaked, so to speak, or not in, a, not in a space where they were prepared to handle a full week of training with our team based on what we knew the demands would be or, or assumed the demands would be um, based on what the coaching plan was. So there were times where an athlete wanted to do all of the training session, and I was like, no, you're not going to do... There's no reason for you to do this shooting drill. First of all, you're an outside back. Why Why do you need to take 25 shots on goal? And we're just a little bit concerned about your risk for getting a muscle injury if you're doing all of this. So you're not going to. Maybe next week. You know, like, so there were times that we had to say a hard no. Um, but more often than not, it's it's kind of an understood conversation once you get to the heart of what it is that the athlete wants to do and they trust that you want what's best for them as well. 100%. 100%. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind that you want to share? No, I guess I would just say like anyone like looking to get into it, like I feel like I made it sound like it was really easy to have these conversations. Um, of course, it's always a little bit... Um, nerve-wracking to go into a head coach's office and have a conversation about their star player not being able to play in a game like that's that's always difficult but if that's why I genuinely believe in that calm consistent curious if every day you're doing little things along the way to build those relationships and really showing up for the athletes and the staff on a day-to-day basis it makes those bigger tougher conversations easier it is you're Basically, if you think of like those hard times as a big rock, everything you do on the day-to-day chips away at that a little bit. So when you get to it, it's more like a pebble. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. And I look at it for, for me as like if you're only – the only conversation you have with anyone, someone, is the beer of bad news. It's like, well, you're just going to be associated with that. Yeah. I think, you know, if it is just like the simple small talk saying hello – 
giving the good news too. Like, love to give the good news, but I think we've both been in a role where a lot of the times we're giving we're giving the tough news. Yeah. Which, which, hey, it's part of the job. Yeah. Um, but I think to that point there, if you can find your wins where you can just say hello, build a relationship elsewhere. So that, like you said, that big rock is just a pebble when you do have to deliver it. Exactly. <laughs> it's inevitable. You're going to have to. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap things up here because I, I think uh, you're onto some cool adventures um, outside of here. Mm-hmm. With you know, I know you started um, like the Master of Sport Directorship. What yeah. is that? What is that? First of all, what is that about, and how'd you get into it? Yeah. So uh, good question. So one of um, somebody who I look up to a lot, um, Chris Morgan, he's physio for Liverpool. Um, he had written a he wrote asked me to write a guest blog and then sent me one of his as an example. I still have not finished the guest blog because in that he talked about this master of sport directorship um, program at Manchester Metropolitan University. I was like, oh, I really respect Chris and uh, I've always valued his opinion. And so I looked it up and read about it. And then I actually found out that one of the players I worked with, um, Karen Bardsley, she used to play for Manchester City and she was on loan to us at Rain, that she had gone through the program. So I call her up. I'm like, hey, what is, can you tell me about this? And like, she just went off about how amazing it is. I do a little bit more research and so many great people in the field who I respect have done it. So I was like, okay, reached out to a few of them, got some insight and decided to apply. So Chris Morgan, if you're listening, I'm getting that blog too, but it's kind of your fault because you put me onto this. So the Master of Sport Directorship is, um, it, it started off, I guess, geared more towards soccer because that sporting director role looks different club to club, but generally speaking, it's somebody who is there for the longevity and the long-term planning of a club. As I mentioned before, head coaches come and go. Um, and so there needs to be somebody in place for the sake of sustainability in the club. So what happened with Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson left and the club went to shambles, right? Because there is no nobody there who is the long-term planner of that. And so if you have that person in place, the goal is then you're always looking towards what's going to happen in the future for the sake of the club. So often that person oversees the coaching department, the medical and performance departments, the performance um, analysis department, the scouting, the loan department. Um, And so having a background as you know, being in the performance and medical space and also understanding the game because I played it at a high level and coached it on a youth level at least. Um, But understanding the game and having that medical background, I think actually sets you up nicely for a role like that. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I did not know that many people went through it. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I actually am learning so much about leadership and management there. And this is something that kind of drove me crazy when I took my job with Rain and now... Um, in my current role where I'm a manager and leader, you know, it's, you learn a lot about the clinical job. That's what we've been prepared for. Um, All of our con ed is in clinical based work, but now half, at least half of my job is leadership. I've never been trained in that. And if I try to teach myself, I'm just going to fall down a YouTube black hole of Ted talk videos. (laughs) So I really like that they structure teaching you about leadership, management, systems, organization, planning. Uh, so I've really enjoyed it so far. That's sweet. I mean, it's definitely a space that is growing mm-hmm. and it's definitely a space that 
is not there yet, though, at the same time. Right. I've noticed that across a few teams where you have smart people, you have good people, but there tends to be that lack of long-term vision at times. Mm-hmm. And I think we're getting there. Um, but that's pretty cool. There's a program out there to do that. Yeah, there, I think there's a couple now, but I think uh, MMU is one of the first ones. Makes sense. I mean, given that they're in Manchester with all the football. Yeah. There. Yeah, so that's cool. <laughs> uh, any, I know you're part, like you, you're a big advocate for women in sports. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we talked about football for her, women in sport and entertainment. I mean, some, some programs that are helping those individuals like yourself get an opportunity to go work into sports. Yeah. Like either of those, um, you know, where can more people find information about those two groups? Yeah. So I would go to women in sports and entertainment. There's uh, an LA chapter, a New York chapter. So you can, you know, look at your local chapter, but also look at kind of like the national organization and they have some leadership courses, some mentorship, also women in football, um, Actually, the the CEO of Women in Football spoke to our um, cohort at Manchester Metropolitan, and so getting to hear about that was awesome. But they provide, they have mentorship programs, they have leadership courses, they have networking opportunities. And I think being a female in this space, it's getting a lot better for sure. But I remember how much of a struggle it was for me to get my first opportunity. And the, uh, the, vicious cycle of like it's I knew that I was prepared for it because I had worked so hard to get ready for it that I knew exactly what I was going to do once I got there and how I would operate it was just a matter of proving to someone else that I was ready right I knew I was but I needed someone to to also believe that I was and so I really enjoy and appreciate um uh organizations like women in sport and entertainment and women in football who help provide a little bit more of that training and also the networking. That's pretty cool. We'll put those in the notes for everyone to find some intel on that. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, we're going to quick, quick, quick hit questions. Okay. Are you ready? Uh, one thing you miss most about being a college athlete. Ooh, the camaraderie. There's nothing, substitute, like you cannot ever get close to like the emotional highs and lows. Um, I still talk to my teammates almost every single day from college and I won't say how many years it's been. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep that. We'll that's a little bit of trivia. For you, <laughs> yeah, but, but um, yeah, I, I miss the, the daily friendships and the emotional highs and lows. I get the locker room too. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Pre-game dance parties. <laughs> <laughs> what was the locker room jam? <laughs> this is going to date me now. Uh, cranked at Soldier Boy. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yes. Just classic um, dances that nobody should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> what was the hardest fitness drill you had to do in school? So I'm actually pretty good with, um, like, we did 120s and, like, that was kind of fine. Beep test I was fine with. I was good with that. I'm just not quick. <laughs> so... So um, any sprint-based, um, or e- actually I'm definitely not powerful either, so like the triple jump, no, I was not good at that. Okay. All right, last three, right? First word that comes to mind. You ready? Mm-hmm. The key to a successful team is? Collaboration. What represents a successful coach or therapist? Collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finding small wins leads to? Success, trust, buy-in. Oh, three of them. I like that. Awesome. Well, hey, this was fun. I'm glad you came down. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Finding Small Wins. If you enjoy these conversations as much as I do, hit that subscribe button and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. To join our Finding Small Wins community, 
head over on to FindingSmallWins.com. For more information about me and my journey, please follow me on social media at Adam.Loyacono. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, keep finding your small wins. Oh,